It's great to be with you all this morning, whether you're worshiping here in person with us or you're watching online. Thank you all so much for being with us. Um, we're continuing in our Advent series that Dan started for us last week, and we're calling it Revisionist Christmas. Now, the reason we're calling that is because we're looking at some of the, the Christmas story and the ways that it's actually been retold in our culture a little bit that may not actually be the way it's told in Scripture. And so last week, Dan re-examined the story of Mary receiving the news that she was pregnant with Jesus. And we saw that Mary was favored not because of her own doing, but because of Jesus. Mary was the object of grace, not the source of grace, as we might hear in some traditions. And so this week, we're moving on to the next part of the Christmas story. And we're looking at the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Now, you may not realize this, but a lot of you in this room do not remember this story correctly. And I know that because I didn't remember this story correctly as I began to study it a little bit. So we're going to see how we don't remember it correctly by first starting with a few of the children's Bibles that I found around the church this week. So first we're going to begin with, and I, I say this lovingly we're going to begin with the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a fantastic resource, but we're going to look at maybe some of the misconceptions by beginning with that story. So you see the picture on the screen is what you open to when you turn to that page in the Jesus Storybook Bible, and this is what it reads. Now Mary and Joseph had taken a trip to Bethlehem, the town King David was from, but when they reached the little town, they found every room was full. Every bed was taken. Go away, the innkeepers told them. There isn't any place for you. Where would they stay? Soon Mary's baby would come. They couldn't find anywhere except an old, tumble-down stable. So they stayed where the cows and the donkeys and horses stayed. And there in the stable, amongst the chickens and the donkeys and the cows, in the quiet of night, God gave the world his wonderful gift. The baby that would change the world was born, his baby son. Mary and Joseph wrapped him up to keep him warm. They made a soft bed of straw, and they used the animal's feeding trough as his cradle. And they gazed in wonder at God's great gift, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, how many of you would say that's the story that you're familiar with? Okay, let's look at a couple other of the kids' Bibles. This next one is the Beginner's Bible. It says, Mary was going to have her baby soon. When they arrived in Bethlehem, they looked for a safe place to sleep, but all the inns were full. Finally, a man was able to help them. He said, I do not have any rooms left, but you're welcome in the stable. Now one more, the rhyme Bible. Do you have room, poor Joseph said? We've come so far and we need a bed. But the busy innkeeper shook his head. Mary and Joseph turned away, but then they heard the innkeeper say, if you don't mind some cows and sheep, I have a place where you can sleep. So I think these represent the Christmas story that most of us know, most of us are familiar with. Mary and Joseph come to Bethlehem. Mary's about to have the baby when they arrive, and so they are looking for this inn to stay in. They can't find one. They keep getting turned away, these innkeepers turning them away. And finally, some innkeeper offers them his stable, to use if they want it. And so they go to this stable out in the field or, or somewhere, and that's where Jesus 
is born with the animals in this stable, right? That's what all the Christmas songs tell us. That's what the kids' storybook Bibles tell us. But our question this morning is, is this what the Bible actually says happens? Well, let's take a look. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 857. Or if you have your own Bible, you can turn there now. And I'm going to read those first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. That's it. That's the whole story. No other gospel writer talks about these events. The next thing that happens is we go to the shepherds in a field. There's no other details that are given to us later. So where's the innkeeper? Where's the stable? Where are the animals? Well, they're made up. They aren't actually in the Bible anywhere. So how did all those events in Luke 2 that we just read, how did they turn into this bigger story that we're all familiar with? This grandiose story about the inn and being turned away and being given a stable and being born around these animals. Well, we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about how did that happen? What may have really happened? And then why does it matter? That's what we're looking at this morning. So first, what happened? Well, how did we get from Luke 2 to the Christmas story that we now all know? Well, I think that a lot happened because of verse 7. Right? Verse 7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Or sometimes you heard it read as there was no room for them in the inn. And we've taken that verse and we've turned it into this entire story. Right? So if there's an inn, there must be an innkeeper, right? If there's no room available in the inn, then we can imagine the innkeeper turning them away. We know that Mary placed Jesus in a manger, the verse tells us, and that was, we know, a feeding trough for animals. So there must have been some sort of stable where animals would be, right? And then maybe we could guess that one of these innkeepers had a stable and he let them use it because Mary was about to give birth and he felt bad. And so the next thing you know, we have these nativity scenes in our yards and on our fireplace mantles. We sing songs about the inn and the innkeeper and making room for Jesus in your heart, not turning him away like the innkeepers. We sing about the stable and the stars in the sky shining down the cattle lowing and all those things. And we don't even realize that none of that is explicitly in the Bible anywhere. So how did things really happen? Well, as we just read, the, the text is pretty simple. But there's actually a lot going on here if we dig just a little bit deeper and ask some questions about context. So the first thing we want to look at is that word in. 
Now, when we hear that word in our culture, the first thing we think of is a hotel, right? We think about this large building with a lot of rooms that you can rent and stay in. But actually, those kind of inns, while they did exist, they weren't really common back then. We have no idea if there would have been one of those type of buildings in a small town like Bethlehem. But that's actually not even the major issue with calling this location an inn. Actually, the bigger issue is that actually probably not quite the the most accurate translation. Now, if you have your pew Bible, it's not going to tell you this in there. But if you have a study Bible, sometimes you'll see a note next to in that will offer another translation of guest room or something similar to that. So what's going on with this word in that we've built so much around? Well, it can mean guest house, which is where we get the idea of an inn, but it can also mean guest room, like a guest room in a private home. So the question for us is which of those does Luke mean? Well, we always want to look in that author's other writings to see if he's used those words before. Fortunately, later in Luke, you don't have to turn there, we'll talk about them. Luke does use these words. So Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan, there's a Good Samaritan who finds this man beat up on the side of the road. He comes and he rescues him. In order for him to heal, he takes him to an inn, and he gives the innkeeper money and says, take care of this man until he's well again. And the word Luke uses there for inn is the typical Greek word for that type of building. Now later in Luke 22, Jesus sends Peter and John to find a place for them to have the Last Supper. He says, go into town, You'll see a man carrying a water jar. Follow him to his house. Go in, ask the master of that house if he has a guest room that we can use. They do that. The man gives them this large furnished guest room that's on the second floor of his house. All the way back to Luke 2, which word does Luke use here? He uses the the word guest room. The same one from Luke 22. There's a guest room. So a lot of scholars will tell you that a better translation of verse 7 here is actually there was no space in the guest room. Now, that might be a little bit confusing for us because we're so used to hearing the story told in a very specific way about the inn and the innkeeper and the stable and the animals, but also because we're told that Jesus is placed when he's born into a manger. We know a manger is a feeding trough for animals. And so we think, well, okay, even if it was a, a guest room or inn, like there's no, guest, there's no manger in a guest house, right? Like there, there's no place for animals to eat in someone's private home. So there must have been, it must be an inn, and they must have left the inn and gone out to where animals would be feeding, where there would be a manger. Well, that's got to be a stable, right? Well, we've got to think, what's the cultural context that we're reading this into? I actually want you to see this morning that there absolutely could have been a manger in someone's house for animals to eat. Let's look at this next slide that we have. 
So this would have been a typical village home at the time of Jesus. You would enter the home on the bottom left there in the door. You would enter in to an area where there would immediately be animals. We might call that a stable, but there was an, an area with hay where the animals would come. The reason for that is that most, if not all people at that time, had animals that they kept, whether for food or milk or um, wool, different things like that. There would have been animals that belonged to these people, and they would have brought them into the house at night for warmth and for safety. So you kept the animals out during the day. In the night, you would bring them in to your house in this lowered area that was like a stable. You had these steps that would go up to a common area where the family would eat and sleep and live. And those two areas were connected. The one was just elevated. And in the elevated area, you can see on there, you would have mangers, either wooden troughs for animals or even mangers that were dug into the ground for the animals in the lower area to eat while the family lived and slept. Now, if you were able to, you might even have a guest room attached to your house or on the second floor of your house so that when visitors came, you would have somewhere for them to stay. So actually, this description of Jesus being born and then laid in a manger doesn't need to be confusing at all if we understand the way someone's private home was back in that time in Israel. Now, is there any other, is there any other evidence from our text that we might be talking about a, a private home rather than an inn or a stable out somewhere else? We'll look back at verse 6. I think most of us are under the impression that Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem and she's ready to have the baby. So they're rushing around trying to find a place to stay. But verse 6 says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The literal translation there says, the days were completed for her to give birth. So the text actually implies that they were there for some unknown amount of time before Mary gave birth to Jesus, at least some unknown amount of days. Well, where were they staying during those days? Look back a few more verses at, at verse 4. We know that Joseph is traveling to Bethlehem for this census because that's his hometown. Not only is it his hometown, Joseph is part of the family of David, and he's returning to a hometown that prided itself on David being from there. They called themselves the city of David. Not only that, he's arriving with a pregnant wife. So one scholar says that given those factors, Joseph, from the, from the family of David, arriving in his hometown, the city of David, with a pregnant wife, Joseph would have been welcomed anywhere in town. Most homes would have been opened to Joseph. In fact, staying in some sort of guest house, some inn, instead of someone's home, would have been unheard of in that culture. For someone from that town to return with a pregnant wife and be sent to an inn would have been a shame on Bethlehem. So if you follow the progression of the text, 
verse 7 makes a lot more sense for us to read it in that light. Joseph and Mary arrive at his hometown of Bethlehem. They stay somewhere for this census. We're not told explicitly where, but the reader at that time would have assumed staying with some relatives or some friends in the city. They would have been there for some amount of days. And then the time for Mary to give birth comes. She gives birth. She wraps Jesus in swaddling clothes, which would have been very normal at that time for newborn babies. And she lays him in one of the mangers. Now, even the reader at that time would have asked, well, wait, why did, why did she have to put him in one of the mangers in the house? And Luke answers, because there was no space in the guest room for them. And then the scene fades to the shepherds. Now, Dan's going to talk about the shepherds next week, but there's even some clues that this might be the right context in the story we hear about the shepherds. We're told that the angels appear to the shepherds. They're told to go find the baby. Now, they're out in the fields where we always picture one of these stables being. Where are they told to go find Jesus? They're told to go to Bethlehem to find him, to the city to find him. When they arrive, verse 18, it says that they tell the story of what happened and all the people who heard them were amazed. So they're clearly arriving somewhere in Bethlehem where there are people around the baby Jesus, around the manger where he's lying, and they hear this story. That seems much more likely to have happened at some home in the city than sort of an obscure stable out in the field somewhere. So, have I thoroughly wrecked your Christmas decorations? Are you going to now go throw out all of your children's Bibles that have made up parts of this story? Well, you don't need to do any of that. That's not really the reason why we spent this morning talking about this. So why does it matter? Why does it matter that we recognize what the real story might have been? Well, at a very simple level, because we ought to stay faithful to what the Bible teaches. Right? We believe that this is God's word. And so we want to be careful ever going beyond what the Bible says explicitly about, you know, we don't be careful making up characters or making up circumstances when we retell stories from the Bible. Now, you even have to take some of what I've said this morning with a grain of salt because I'm still giving you some historical and cultural context. Maybe it, maybe it better explains the story, but it's not explicitly in the text, so let's be careful even there. But more than that, This morning, I want you to see that Jesus doesn't need us to make him into more or less than what the Bible says that he is. At the heart of this story is the simple truth that Jesus' birth was common. Jesus' birth was simple. He entered into this world just like the rest of us. Born into a common family in his dad's hometown in a simple home. In a time and culture when many would have expected the Messiah to be born into some mansion or to some palace, Jesus was born in a regular house. And so his birth is a message to those who expected him to have some sort of kingly birth. But we also don't need to go the opposite way. 
and turn Jesus' birth into a story about a, a poor family that has to go to this rundown stable out in the middle of a field. It's become very popular these days to use this exaggerated version of Jesus' birth story to say something like, see, Jesus was born to, to destitute poor parents who were uh, oppressed by the government and they were rejected by the, the powerful and the, the authorities and structures of Bethlehem and they were forced to give birth in, in the middle of this uh, rundown stable, dirty stable with animals all around them. Jesus doesn't need us to add to or make up stories about him. And so we ought to be careful in using him to advance any kind of political or social message. Jesus, life, excuse me, birth, life, death, and resurrection speak for themselves. Jesus took on a common, simple birth, a common life and death of a regular human being because he was one. So the beauty of Luke's story isn't Jesus being born into these dramatic circumstances and, and rising out of a dirty stable up to greatness. The beauty of Luke's story is the divine becoming human. The entrance of God into our world as a person just like each one of us. One scholar put it this way. What is extraordinary about the birth of Jesus is that it shows God shifting from the divine to the human. If that had happened in a crowded family home, the message is preserved. If it happened in an isolated stable somewhere else, that just shows the descent from respected human to disrespected human. Now, if you're like me, we struggle with this because we struggle to understand the incarnation. We struggle with the divinity of Jesus, certainly, struggling with the virgin birth and the miracles he performed and his resurrection. But we also struggle with the humanity of Jesus. We write songs that say, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. As if something as normal as a baby crying would be below him. We wonder why he chose the life of a simple carpenter. His disciples wondered why he wouldn't declare himself boldly and publicly to the authorities, to the Pharisees and the Romans. But Jesus was continually content to be among common people. We should be content with his common birth. Because in his commonness is where Hebrews 4.15 comes alive. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was just like us. Fully human, born in a village, in a small house, laid in a manger because their guest room was full, grew up as a common carpenter working with his hands, he got tired from walking and talking all day. He fell asleep in the back of a boat. He cried when his friend died. He was betrayed by one of his other friends. He called out to God in his anxiety and his worry. He was lied about. He was falsely accused of being a criminal. And he died as a common criminal right next to two other 
common thieves. But Jesus was also God himself. And so then he rose from the dead and he conquered death to save common people like you and me. Make us brothers and sisters. Let's celebrate that Jesus as we come now to the table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for both the divinity but also the humanity of Jesus, that he's like us. Thank you for this story of his common, regular birth so that we can know he's like us. He's like us and he died so that we might be like him. Pray that as we come to the table, we'd be reminded of that. Amen.